Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hi, I'm Dr. Robert Pearl, former CEO of the Permanente Medical Group, Kaiser Permanente, a Stanford Medical and Business School professor, a Forbes contributor and best-selling author of the book Mistreated, Why We Think We're Getting Good Healthcare and Why We're Usually Wrong. And I am Jeremy Kaur, host of the New Books in Medicine podcast. American healthcare is broken. Across the United States, there are over 200,000 patient deaths from medical error every year, growing physician burnout, outdated technology, and inconvenient and delayed care for patients. And on top of all of this, skyrocketing drug prices and increasingly unaffordable out-of-pocket patient expenses. For decades, our nation's political and medical leaders have talked about fixing the American healthcare system, and yet the problems are now greater than in the past. Every other industry that is inefficient and ineffective has experienced disruption. Healthcare will be no different. The question is whether the solutions will come from inside the healthcare system or be imposed on it. We'd like to invite you to listen to our new podcast, Fixing Healthcare with Dr. Robert Pearl and Jeremy Kaur. Each episode will feature one of the top leaders and innovative thinkers in healthcare today. The show's format is simple. The guests will present a roadmap for fixing American healthcare's biggest problems. And from there, Jeremy and I will scrutinize the plan and help listeners separate fixes that have the potential to succeed from simply the hype. Our goal is that everyone from healthcare consumers to political and medical leaders will find value in the discussions on our show. You may not agree with the different solutions offered, but you will never again conclude that nothing can be done. We hope you will join us. Please subscribe via iTunes or your favorite podcast software. For more information, visit our website at www.fixinghealthcarepodcast.com. Hello, everyone, and welcome to New Books in Medicine. I am your host, Jeremy Kaur. Today, we will be talking to Dr. Randy Hutter Epstein. She is an adjunct professor at Columbia University and is a lecturer at Yale. Her work has appeared in the New York Times and Psychology Today. She is here today to talk about her new book, Aroused, the history of hormones and how they control just about everything. Randy, welcome to the show. Thanks so much for inviting me. I wonder if you could begin by telling us a little bit about yourself. Well, um... I'm an MD. I don't practice medicine. I write about medicine, and I teach medical writing, and I particularly like to research areas of what I call like that, those overlaps between science and society. So I'm fascinated by new research findings, and I'm fascinated by advances in medicine, but I'm really interested in the why. Why did we choose this path and not that one? Why did we interpret the data this way and not that way? So we can look back in the past sometimes, you know, we can see things in the past in hindsight much better than we see things now. So if we look at things in the past, we can look at things that were done and say, oh, um, the data was there, but they just interpreted in what now we'd say is a weird way and then went off in the wrong direction. So it's not just the data, it's how we interpret it and what we do with it. So what inspired you to write Aroused? 
What inspired me to write Aroused was that um, after years of delving into medical archives and newspapers, speaking to endocrinologists, speaking to a lot of patients, I realized that there's a lot of confusion when we hear about hormones. And I wanted to set the record straight. I wanted to make a distinction between some of the fabulous advances that have gone on in the last century. And there have been phenomenal advances, but yet there's been some ridiculous, outrageous claims. So I'm hoping that at the end of the book, my readers will be able to say, oh, okay, that's kind of hogwash, but wow, I really respect that endocrinologists are able to do this or that now. So to your point, what exactly are hormones and uh, what do they discover? Can you give our listeners some background for the rest of our conversation? Sure. Hormones, it's a really simple definition. The definition of a hormone is just this, a chemical that's released from a gland and able to hit a faraway target. Now, we don't mean far away, you know, like from New York to California. <laughs> we mean like pituitary to adrenal gland. And you might think, oh, well, everything works that way. But before we understood the concept of hormones, the thinking was that everything in the body either traveled along nerves. So you had nerve signals that just traveled along that if you think of just like a train track or um, a circuit, a telephone operator circuit. Or, so that was one way, the nerves, or we thought that things went, were sent around messages the way oxygen goes through the blood. It just sort of floats down a river. But hormones are very, very different. And the remarkable thing is that when they're released, let's say from the head, they are targeted. They are on a mission and they know to hit the ovary or the pancreas or wherever they're going. I like to say it's like your internal wireless internet, your internal Wi-Fi. And I love saying it because I actually have no concept of how the internet works and Wi-Fi. I have a lot of, I understand hormones. I actually don't understand Wi-Fi, but I do know that I have routers in my house um, and your body has similar kind of things that help guide the hormone to where it's going. You open your book with the story of uh, Blanche Gray, a.k.a. the Fat Bride. Can you please share this story and its significance for our listeners? Yeah, this sort of piqued my interest because for two reasons. One is I had read about Harvey Cushing, who's the founder of neurosurgery and the founder of endocrinology, a remarkable guy. And around the time that Harvey Cushing was trying to understand the body, he was also trying to look, and he and others of his ilk were trying to understand bodies that went awry. So they were interested in these so-called circus freaks. It's such an awful time in American history when you could go to the circus and next to the roller coaster would be your bearded lady. I mean, I guess we saw that recently in the new Barnum film, that these people, like, there would be the fat lady, the bearded lady, the armless wonder. We had disabled people that we had them on display. It was so horrific. So, but at the same time that we had these, um, that we were just putting different people or other people that were different on display, there were some doctors saying, wait, 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 these people might have a medical ailment that we can help. Now, at the time, we couldn't really help them, but we wanted to study them. As I was going through newspapers, I found a slew of newspaper articles, mainly in the local press in Baltimore, 
and in and in New York about this girl who was dubbed the fat bride. So she was someone who was born and gained weight and was massively overweight her whole life. Um, her father and brothers were so upset because they thought, oh, no, she'll never get married, which was the goal in the 1880s. That was what a woman was supposed to do. So she ran away to the circus. And, you know, historians look back at this period, and yes, it's awful that we had these people on display, but they also say that for some people it gave them agency. They got paid for this. Um, if you were going to a hospital and getting checked, a lot of times there was nothing the doctors could do, but they would bring in a gaggle of students to you know, to gawk at you and say, wow, we can't believe the human body did this. So it was a very just weird time for these people. I got onto the story of the fat bride because there was a story of this woman who was young. She was the fat lady in the circus. She got married. So therefore, she changed from fat girl to fat bride. She married someone who wanted to be her manager. Um, she ended up dying young, and she was buried in the Baltimore Cemetery where she was supposed to be on display. I can't even say perform because these people weren't performing. But what happened at the cemetery is remarkable. It was bad enough that there were all these people in the neighborhood wanting to see how this fat, obese woman was buried. She was close to 600 pounds. Wow. But they had to hire armed guards. Why? Because they were worried that doctors at the local hospital, like Johns Hopkins and the other institutions, would be right there in the 1880s, ready to try to pay someone to steal this body and get it out of the grave and then study it and maybe try to make some gland discoveries. Now, you, you mentioned this, this them going and digging up the, the body, and that's not, you know, for our listeners, that's not out of the ordinary for these things to happen, just so everybody knows in this time period. Um, and we talked a little bit about Cushing. Uh, he founded the field of uh, neurosurgery and endocrinology. Um, can you talk to us a bit about him and share your own personal story about delving into his history? Oh, sure. So, um, so Harvey Cushing, just people know, yes, he, he, you know, we like to say he founded these two fields. He wasn't the first person that said, oh, I'm going to cut into the brain and remove a tumor, but he was considered the most effective. Like fewer people died on the operating room table when Harvey Cushing did the surgery in the early 1900s. Most people died a few months later because we weren't curing people of brain tumors, but they didn't die on the table the way they did with many other surgeons. He, he was a pioneer in endocrinology, and what he did that others hadn't done so much before was he really connected the pituitary with the body. He was one of the first people to say, oh, the brain and body are connected. And he put out these theories with, with some proof, but not hard proof, but he turned out being right, saying that some people have tiny tumors that we can't see. We couldn't see them in the early 1900s. We didn't have the equipment we do today. Some people have tiny tumors, he said, in the pituitary that then, because of those hormone issues in the brain, will then just set off this whole cascade of hormone imbalances and make them look like what we think of as these so-called circus freaks. So he was saying the bearded lady should not just be sitting there in the circus. She likely has a pituitary issue or she has something with her adrenal gland. And he was right. We couldn't really do anything to help them at that time. But he was really on the right path. So that was his remarkable experience. Um, my my um, brush with history 
history is that I teach at Yale, and Yale happens to be the recipient of Harvey Cushing's brain collection. So in in those days in the early 1900s, I mean, I guess he sort of asked permission from the families, but... You know, someone was saving your life. You couldn't really say no to a neurosurgeon. So whenever Harvey Cushing operated on someone, he would keep a bit of their brain in a jar. And then when they died, he'd take, like, the rest of their brain. He did this also because one of his first experiments that he wanted, one of his first operations that he wanted to do further research after, someone lost the specimen. And he was not an easygoing guy, Harvey Cushing. He was immensely talented, but he wasn't a warm and cuddly person. And the moment someone made that mistake and lost this specimen, he said, okay, from now on, I am personally keeping every single specimen under my own wraps. So he did. So he kept every chunk of brain he took out of someone in a jar. He asked friends and colleagues, send me your interesting stuff. Kept that too. He amassed over 600 jarred brains by the end of his career in the 1930s. He was at Harvard at the time um, and assumed that Harvard was going to make it into this beautiful library or collection, which they didn't. So in a huff, when he retired, Yale said, you can come back. He had gone to undergrad there, and we'll take your jarred brains, or he brought them with him. And as things sometimes happen in academia, these jarred brains at first were not displayed beautifully in a library. They were just kind of shoved around his department and eventually got lost. And in the 1990s, Some students found these brains. They didn't know what they were at first, but some students who were mucking about in the basement of the medical school dorm found jars and jars of brain bits in the corner of the basement, kind of near where they store their sleeping bags for their medical school orientation and things like that. So the first medical students to find these jarred brains were thinking, okay, this is weird. And over drinks and beers, they would sort of dare each other to go down and stare at the brains. They actually had a poster next to these brains that we had no idea. They had no idea what they were that just said the Brain Society. And if you could sign the poster, it proved that you snuck down into the basement in this really creepy corner. It wasn't until about five or six years later when one medical student said, Maybe he was taking a medical history class and said, oh, maybe these are Harvey Cushing's brains. So anyhow, I'm not going to go through the whole story, which I have in the book, but eventually through a donation, most of these brains and their jars have now been restored and they are beautifully displayed with gorgeous images in the Yale Medical School Library. There's a whole room called the Cushing Brain Room. It's less creepy than I'm making it sound. <laughs> um, and, and that room has has Harvey Cushing's notes, his books, his artwork. He was also an, an a beautiful artist. I mean, he could have been a medical illustrator on his own, if not just for doing the surgery and the endocrinology. So his drawings are there, photographs of his patients that are museum quality, and these gorgeous restored jars of brains. What I did was I found out that not all the brains have been restored. We still have about, oh, 150, maybe 200 unrestored jars of brains in their original puckered, dried out kind of way still in the basement in that creepy corner. So I've done it twice now. I've brought my students 
into the basement and I go with the archivist because any, anyone can go see the restored brains, but you need to know someone with a key to sneak down into the basement of the Dorans, which we've done. And we go back into this room that's padlocked now. And you could see sort of the jumbles of the old stacked brains. And there's even some old medical equipment and old slides there. So I really feel like, I, don't, I just feel like Harvey Cushing's ghost is flittering around as we go through that room. And I think it just gives you a sense of how old everything is and just his um, his fastidiousness of just collecting all this material. That's really, really cool. Thank you for sharing that story. Uh, in your book, you try to divide the, the hucksters from the heroes, but sometimes there are some gray areas. Uh, will you please talk about this? And since we've been talking about Cushing, share the story of his attempted uh, pituitary gland transplant from baby to man. Sure. I mean, I mean I'm really interested, and I think most of us are more interested in in this gray zone because, you know, there are certain things that you can go back in history and say, oh, gosh, you know, they said that this bottle of whatever it was contains a hormone elixir that's going to cure your constipation and your cancer. Okay, we get it. Like, that was silly. You can go online today and find bottles of over-the-counter so-called hormone stuff that we have no idea if you're overdosing on thyroid or there's nothing in it. And most of us know, okay, don't do that. But then there's areas in medicine that aren't so hard to distinguish in terms of the motivation of the person. So I'll give two examples. And one, as you said, like Harvey Cushing, I mean, he was a phenomenal surgeon, a brilliant researcher, but he was also human. So he had some ideas that didn't work. So in the early 1930s, when he was when he was enamored, he said he was in love with the pituitary, and he was. I think he spent more time with the pituitary than he did with his wife and kids. Um, but he assumed, or he attempted this, that one of his patients had a pituitary tumor and was not doing well. It makes he was tired and he was had double vision and a lot of the typical signs that you can have when a pituitary tumor mucks up all your other glands. So Cushing thought, well, what I can do is take his tumor out and then if I can get a pituitary from a recently dead baby, because that would be a fresh, un- uncorrupted pituitary, I'll just take that baby pituitary and put it into this 48-year-old man. So um, he sort of sent out word among people of colleagues to say, let me know when a baby dies. And this was 1930s. You weren't really going through review boards and ethics boards. And he was able to send one of his um, medical students rushed over to a hospital, grabbed this pituitary gland from a baby, came back to his hospital. They transplanted it. Um, no surprise, it didn't work. You can't just drop a new pituitary from a baby into a man. But the newspapers caught on. And so I think it was the Baltimore Sun that was like, you know, baby brain, broken brain cured. And um, it seemed the man, the patient did not 
die right away, but he wasn't getting better. But Cushing didn't give up. He tried one more time and gave the man another baby pituitary gland. Um, and that after that second operation, the man died. Now, Cushing couldn't admit he was wrong, though he was wrong. Um, he blamed it that he got the gland too late. He blamed it on the people that took the gland out of the baby. Um, but again, if, if someone else had tried this, we might say that's totally crazy and they're nuts and, you know, they're not even that smart. But here was this wickedly smart person who tried something and it didn't work. So we have these daring scientists that sometimes it works and sometimes it doesn't. The other story I wanted to talk about is Eugene Steinack. Now, Steinack um, was also a, a wonderful researcher in Vienna, and he was the one. I mean, he was nominated for a Nobel Prize 11 times. You have to be a pretty good researcher to be, be nominated 11 times. And he was the one that isolated. He didn't call it the Leydig cell. That's what we call it now, but it's the cells that line the tubes and the um, in the testes that sperm is released from, and he didn't, and that testosterone, I'm sorry, is released from. And we didn't name testosterone yet, but he felt he found the cells that release male hormone, he called it. So that was right. That was, that was, that could have been Nobel worthy. It was Nobel nomination worthy, and that was great research. But then he took a wrong turn. And again, it wasn't so much stupid or crazy, it was just misinterpretation. He thought, okay, well, if you ha if I've now just discovered this cell that leaks or spews male hormone, if I could figure out a way to block it so it doesn't leak out of the body altogether and it stays in, think about what that would do to your libido and your thinking and all the things that we think of that men do. They're smart, they think well, they're energetic, and they have massive libidos. So from that, he said, oh, have a vasectomy. If you want to stay fertile, just do it one-sided. But it will definitely, it show. you know, my research shows, my research in rats shows it will boost your libido. So um, I'm sure you're aware that when we come up with libido cures, people love it. They jump on that. So Freud got a vasectomy. Freud, the um, psychiatrist, psychoanalyst, and said he never felt better. Then Yeats, the poet, got a vasectomy and said he was writing the way he hadn't in years. And then thousands of men did it in the United States. It became so popular, Steinack's name became a verb. So it was called getting Steinacked. And he had testimonial after testimonial of men saying they never felt better. But anyhow, so the, the, the Steinacking became so popular and it didn't fade because then men said, oh, this doesn't make sense. It faded because we were able to isolate testosterone, and then we got into the whole testosterone gel and testosterone shots and things. Um, but I think the Steinack story is important because it also shows the power of placebo and the power of testimonial over scientific data. And I'm sure we hear that today. Someone will say, I just got this over-the-counter medicine. My doctor's really not thrilled with it, but everyone I know, it makes them feel better. Mm -hmm. So so it's sort of, I think we just keep having the same issues with data versus science and what's right and how we interpret things. It kind of keeps, that's how we sort of bump along in the progress of medicine. 
So to kind of stay on the topic of libido and, and, and love and everything like that, what's the deal with oxytocin? Is it the love drug? Is there any truth to that? What do we know about it? This is what we know. So we know that if you go online, you can buy sprays that claim to have oxytocin. And you can buy that. I'm not saying they work, but I'm saying it's out there and you could spray around and have people love you. There have been TED Talks about that. But every, it's that, that's kind of cockamamie. But things just don't come out of thin air. It's not like we're selling like other potions. Like they all come from a seed of truth. So what is the truth? So oxytocin, we, we've known for a while, is the hormone that, um, that when you're giving birth, it's the one that squeezes the uterus so the baby comes out. It's also the hormone that you need to get your milk flowing. That we've known for, for a while. Then we we did some remarkable studies in the 1950s where one doctor was wondering, he was an animal researcher, is there a hormone, is there a chemical for mother-baby bonding? You know, what makes a, a, a mother rat love her newborn rat? But she won't, if she's not giving birth, she's not going to cuddle someone else's stranger rat. So I go into the details in my book, but just to say that some really odd studies and wonderful studies where a doctor blocked oxytocin in the brain of rats and then goats, and those pregnant rats and pregnant goats, when they gave birth, they like headbutted, they pushed away their newborns. So without oxytocin, there was no love for the newborn. And they also did the other thing. They took virgin rats that normally would have nothing to do with baby rats and they injected into their brains oxytocin and they started like putting their breasts out for these babies to nuzzle on and they started cuddling foreign babies, not their own. So that sort of started to look at, wow, oxytocin is a hormone that's very important in those moments of birth, not just for getting the baby out, but for having a mother feed and nurture the baby. Given those seeds of what oxytocin does, there has been extrapolations and recent research into, oh, is it the trust hormone? Is it a hormone that we can add to ourselves so that we can be more empathetic and people can love us. Here's the issue. The big question is most of this is sort of hogwash and some of this is the issue. There might be something to it, but putting, smelling oxytocin or rubbing it on you or having an oxytocin piece of candy is very different from what the animal studies when we injected it right into the brain. So we're not quite sure. Someone gave me what tasted kind of like a lifesaver um, and said there was oxytocin in it and I should feel bonded to the people around me. I'm not really sure how much of, if even if there were oxytocin in it, how much was actually going into my brain where I would need it to alter my trust and empathy. Other doctors think that it's not so much the love drug or the empathy drug, but it might enhance your baseline emotions. So if it were to work, if it were to get into your brain in these behavioral ways, that if I were very distrustful of someone, 
and I was able to have more oxytocin in my brain, it might make me even more distrustful. So it's not so much that it's making you love. It might be enhancing. It, it's a, it, there's, there's hints that it might be enhancing your, um, those, those sort of communicative people bonding or not bonding feelings. But then again, you'd have to like be shoving it right into your brain. So I would say you could save your money on the oxytocin sprays, but you might be fascinated to know about some of the animal research that's going on and what what we really do know about it. So we just talked about oxytocin and we talked about libido earlier. Uh, With the whole Me Too movement going on and the, the focus and attention around that, is there any ties to when men or women in these influential roles or anything like that you know, sexually harass someone or, or you know, maybe sleep with a secretary when they know it's a bad idea? Okay, well, I want to tell a little story that might not seem to have to do with libido, but it has to do with hormones and behavior, and it goes back to 1924, and I promise I'm going to get back to, like, sleeping with the secretary. <laughs> um, so... In 1924, there was this, what was called the crime of the century, the Leopold and Loeb trial. Basically, in a nutshell, two rich boys from Chicago who had it all tried to get away with murder. They killed the son of one of their wealthy parents' friends. They got caught right away. They were complete brainiacs. They weren't good murderers. They would probably be, or at least one would be what you called now like a psychopath and the other was a follower. But in those days in 1924, the parents had money. They hired Clarence Darrow, the lawyer who would then go on to do the Scopes trial of the Tennessee teacher who was accused because he taught um, evolution in 1925. So the, the parents hired Clarence Darrow. It's all over the tabloids, national press. And people were thinking, like, what, as we would today, what drove these kids that had it all to murder? People were blaming that they were raised by nannies. People were saying, oh, it's because they were gay. Someone said it's because they were petty thieves, one had stolen from a um, lemonade stand. And then Clarence Darrow, their lawyer, said, ah, he brought in scientists and said, here's what can explain it all, this new science of endocrinology. And I talk about the trial and all this in the book. And the end is that the judge, and I'm going to play the role of the judge when it comes to Me Too movement, but the judge in the 1924 said, wow, basically, I'm going to paraphrase his legalese. This is all fascinating that here you are two doctors saying, well, their hormones made them do it. They had a, whatever, a pineal gland they said that was off. They had multiglandular symptoms. They had no inhibition. They just went out and murdered and it was their hormones driving them to do it. Well, that is just fascinating. I'm glad we have this field of endocrinology, but guess what? It's not going to get these kids off of committing murder. And so now let's flip forward to the secretary thing and these men who can't keep their zipper up. <laughs> And it also relates to what another doctor was doing, was doing testosterone research in the 1950s. And he felt that he could really manipulate a rat's mounting behavior by fiddling with rat's hormone, testosterone. So he would give the rat more testosterone and this rat would become more inclined to mate any or mount any female rat. Didn't work so directly in dogs when he did dog experiments. There were some dogs that were like juiced up with testosterone and they'd still reject the bitch. So 
this researcher who wasn't studying humans had this theory that the that the higher the more cognitive stuff you have going on in your brain, the less the direct influence on testosterone, which leads me to say, well, there we still don't know exactly, you know, testosterone and aggression, testosterone and irritability, it's still wishy-washy out there, you know, there's still some research, yes, we know it can make some men irritable when it's, when it's higher, when they're really, like, shooting up with way too much testosterone, but for the man that isn't shooting up, or even if you are, I would think that there's other stuff going on in your brain that can say, keep my zipper up, that can say, don't masturbate in front of um, women that work for me, and don't sleep with the secretary. So, yeah, I'm, I'm not into the testosterone made me do it excuse or that oh we can say oh it's their hormones that have made them do it there's I think hormones do control just about everything but in ways we're just now starting to understand they're they're in they they um, are connected to our immune system to chemical transmitters so one of the things I'm hoping people glean from aroused from my book is that it's so much more complicated and yet so much more fascinating than we ever imagined. So we, we talked a bit about testosterone in men, but what causes menopause and uh, things like hot flashes in women? Uh, I can talk menopause. I am a menopausal woman, so I can have complete sympathy for all the women that I that I interviewed and the doctors that I spoke to. So one fun fact is that some scientists, I'm not 100% sure I agree with this, but it's a fun its a fun little scientific thing. The only other animal that goes through menopause apparently is the killer whale. Um, so that's just a fun little tidbit. What causes it? We know that we all have, men and women, we have this internal thermostat in us. So if the temperature goes a little higher, our bodies our our bodies sort of accommodate to slight temperature changes. You know, if it really gets hot, we start sweating. What happens with menopausal women is this thermostat, sort of this window that lets our body sort of acclimate, slams shut. So it gets a little a little hotter, slight temperature change. And we, it's not just sweating. It is as if you have this inner furnace in you that is just, not just making you feel hot, but this claustrophobic hot. Like you just need to break out and have space. It's a claustrophobic, sweltering feeling. So some women will say, um, that they never, that they're starting to get anxious or they're starting to get panic attacks. And we now know that those, um, those panic attacks or anxiety is probably related to this feeling of not being able to, you're thinking you can't breathe. You're thinking because you're feeling so hot and closed in. Um, what do we know about it? We're starting to do fascinating research. There's um, a doctor, a pathologist I write about in my book, who actually examined the brains of menopausal women, women who had died, to brains who died before menopause, and she's actually seeing that there's one cell in the brain that's much larger in menopausal women than it is in non in pre-menopausal women, so that's a clue. We know, yes, it's related to lower estrogen, but it may not just be as simple. There's other things going on, too. Um, so her clue about this cell 
has been leading to some other non-hormonal treatments to help women with hot flashes. Will you please talk a bit about the, the hypothalamus and obesity? Yes. I mean, this is really, this to me is um, the kind of research that really shows where we are today in endocrinology. This is really the future of endocrinology. So we know that among a few people, not a few, it's a minority of people, it's a rare thing that if you have a defect in the pathway of the hormone leptin, you will be compelled to eat, which is actually a fascinating thing when you think about it. We tend to think that, oh, I have a genetic or a hormonal issue, therefore I gain weight more easily. That's not this with the leptin defect. What it is is a compulsion to keep eating. So it's actually we're now seeing a hormone connected to a behavior. People that have this defect, they're not enjoying food. They don't even think it tastes good. They're just compelled to keep eating. Um, the good news is that for some people, we now know leptin shots. For some people who have low levels, can make them feel full for the first time in their life. Um, they take off the weight. They actually enjoy food, and they're not um, obsessed with this feeling that they have to keep eating. Um, unfortunately, there are people that have a defect in the leptin receptor, so all the leptin in the world won't help them, but we are coming up with new drugs in the pipeline that help at the receptor level and help diff at a different point of the pathway. And so to me, that's fascinating in understanding, yes, why we eat, but it's also why how hormones, if you look at the broader picture, affect behavior. And that said, um, I wouldn't recommend that people go out and buy a leptin diet book because, again, like all things in endocrinology, once there's this seed of wonderful truth, there's someone willing to grab on and make a lot of money. So, unfortunately, um, there is no cure-all diet that's going to, um, like, fiddle with your hormones and make it so you're less hungry all the time. You know, probably along the lines of eating healthy, that might help. Um, we also do not have a diet pill for all of us to say, okay, can you make it so I'm less hungry? Um, because I think the issue with that is a lot of us eat not just because we're hungry. We eat for other reasons. We eat because, oh, you know, I'm, I'm going to be on the radio today, so sure, I'll go out and go out and get ice cream last night because that will make me feel good. It um, doesn't matter if we're hungry or not. So for many of us, there's other things going on. There's social factors other than hormones. But, but that's not to discount this amazing research that is going on now in terms of appetite and hormones. What would you say is the most pivotal event in the history of endocrinology? Okay, that's an easy question for me. Sometimes when I'm researching something, I'm like, wow, there's so many things I want to talk about. But when it comes to the history of endocrinology, there's one pivotal event, and that is the creation of the technique of radioimmunoassay. And this was the first technique that allowed us in the middle of the 20th century to measure hormones for the first time. So consider this. Before Rosalind Yallow and Solomon Burson, two researchers in the Bronx, came up with this technique to measure hormones, before them, we didn't measure hormones at all. 
so in the 1950s, even in the early 1960s, they had, they had the technique, but it wasn't widespread. If you were a kid in 1959 who was way too short, or if you were a girl that had too much hair on your face in places you shouldn't, and you went to the doctor, they would look at you and they would say, oh, maybe it's a cortisol issue. Maybe you have Cushing's disease. Maybe you have growth hormone deficiency. But they didn't measure it at all. Not at all. There was no, like, a little lower, a little higher. It was complete guesswork. After these two researchers, and and Rosaniello won the Nobel Prize for this. Salman Burson had already died. That's why he didn't get it. After these two researchers, we could measure, discover, invented their technique. We could measure hormones down to the billionth, that's with a B, billionth of a gram. So that's like one grain of salt in the ocean. And so we could, for the first time, if you went to a doctor, they would measure your hormones and they started to figure out what the norms are and they could monitor. And the thing that's fascinating is, it didn't just revolutionize, and I, and I really cringe at using the word revolutionize because we say it all the time for any advance. This was revolutionary, and it didn't just revolutionize the field of endocrinology, but really all medicine in the 20th century. We would not have been able to pinpoint the HIV virus and have an H, you know, for AIDS if it weren't for these techniques of radioimmunoassay. There'd be no fertility business. There'd be no drug monitoring. Anything that we used to think was too scarce to measure, we're able to measure now. Um, so to me, that really is the, it was sort of the pre-YALO first in years of endocrinology and the post. And it's really just an awesome, awesome achievement. We don't use exactly their technique today because of course it's been, it's been modernized, but everything that we do to measure, to find viruses and measure hormones is based on their technique. Well, Randy, I've taken up a lot of your time today. My final question for you is what are you working on now? Well, you know, I'm still immersed in hormones, as we all are, but I'm, you know, I, I'm always fascinated. I think it's why I study hormones and why I'm curious with infectious disease, too. Um, I'm always curious of, maybe it's because I'm short also, tiny things that pack a, a powerful punch. So that's what led me to hormones, and I'll probably be sticking along those ways in the future of my research. Okay, that sounds great. Well, I'd love to have you back on my show in the future. Um, thank you very much for your time today. Thank you. I really appreciate that you invited me here. All right, have a great day. You too.